Are you ready? Yes. All right, so I am on my fourth kid right now, uh, my fourth high schooler, and at this point, I have just heard about every excuse humanly possible to explain why doing homework is a cruel and unusual punishment. And uh, if you have kids, you also know uh, the next thing after hearing how cruel and unusual it is, is this is so stupid, why do I need to know this, right? Now, I do have to tell you when they're doing math, um, and I mean like the high-level kind of math where you see them struggling with it and you start to think, dear God, please don't let them come ask me about this. Um, that happens to me a lot lately. Um, and when they're, they're doing it, they ask that same question, why do I need to know this? Uh, and as I look at it, and I have no clue, I've thought to myself, you know, I think they might actually have a point here. I'm not sure why you do need to know this. Math is one thing most of us rarely ever use again. Some of the algebraic formulations that we become so familiar with in high school, they drift from our mind, and uh, very rarely have ever walked down the street and thought to myself, wow, if I could just remember how to put a derivative into this, I could solve everything. We forget that, but it bears little impact on our day-to-day -day lives. Not so with another subject I've heard my kids talk about when they're doing their homework. When I hear the oft-repeated cry of, why do I have to know this stuff, it's so stupid, if they're talking about history, why do I have to know about the, the Whig party, this is so stupid, why do I have to know what the Magna Carta is, this is so stupid, they, and frustratingly often will hear me um, give them the great quote by George Santayana. I like saying that, Santayana. Those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. It's a brilliant quote. Because the lessons of history that go unlearned, unlike algebra, actually really do come back to haunt us. American history, my own personal history is rife with it. That's for my own knowledge and not for yours. But American history and yours is rife with it too. How many times have you said, I can't believe I haven't learned this by now? American history is rife with it. Uh, you know, several lessons uh, that could have been learned in World War II went unlearned, or World War I went unlearned, and, and thus quickly on its heels was World War II. Um, lessons from Vietnam and the first Gulf War went unlearned, and no matter, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, I don't think any of us thought we'd still be in Afghanistan 16 years after we went in. Because we don't learn lessons from history, and so oftentimes we find ourselves repeating it. In 1987, my, my parents were recently divorced, and my dad was living out of a, a one-bedroom uh, apartment. It was very sad to see my dad. Was, my dad's a proud guy, and it was very sad to see him living like that. I was very excited when he finally got enough money where he could buy himself a, a one, um, a two, three-bedroom townhouse. Um, and so for him, it was a big splurge. He had kids in college. He was supporting um, my mom and, and her house. And so he, he finally saved up enough money to get this townhouse. And I remember he took me to see it because um, I was going to live with him when I came home from school. And uh, it was a nice place, really nice. And I remember the carpets were like almost white. And I just always remember how beautiful the carpets were. I'm like, Dad, this is really nice. Like, how much does this cost? And that was back in the 80s. And uh, it was kind of west of here. So it was a, a, a less expensive zip code. And my dad's like, he goes, this is, it's $130,000. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money, Dad. Are you sure you have the money for this? He goes, well, he said, things are going to be tight, but real estate, you know, real estate always goes up. And I reminded him of that when he couldn't sell it for $90,000 in the 90s. 
my, my family and I, we vacation Ocean City, Maryland. That's our spot. You know, everybody's got their spot. And so our spot is Ocean City. And uh, Ocean City real estate in, in the mid-2000s got so hot. I mean, they were building condos. They were flipping the condos before they were built. They would sell them um, in the building stage two and three times over. And, uh, I, you know, I'm sitting around watching this go on. I'm going, man, I should, I should buy a place here in Ocean City because real estate always goes up. And uh, I remember they built this one place, the Gateway Grand. Any know anybody know the Gateway Grand in Ocean City, Maryland? Um, they put it up, and this was just, this was, I looked at Joe, and I said, this is officially the end. Because there was a sign that went up front, no joke. It said, beautiful, you know, one-bedroom condos starting at a million dollars. The next year, they were selling for $500,000. Mark Twain, uh, well, it's funny, I saw two things this week. I saw a t-shirt that said, if history really repeats itself, I am so getting a dinosaur. Which I thought was cute. <laughs> Mark Twain has my new favorite quote, um, at least it's attributed to him, about history. He said, it's not true, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. It sure does rhyme. And so if this is true about, about our pasts, um, things that we should have learned, if it's true about uh, our culture, if it's true about real estate, is it possible it's true about fear? That if we went back and looked at humanity's history with fear, maybe we could learn something so that we don't keep repeating the same mistakes that are born of our fear and maybe learn some solutions to it. Hopefully after the first two weeks of, of this series that we're in called Why Am I So Afraid, I've convinced you that biblically, Fear is a really, 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 really big biblical issue. Historically speaking, many of you know FDR said that there was nothing to fear but fear itself. But in many ways, he could have been channeling the thoughts of Jesus, who more than any other command, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But more than any command by far, he said, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Let your heart not be troubled. Why? Because we've looked at the last couple of weeks what fear can do to us. One of the things we learned is that the first thing it does to us uh, is, is it starts to not only erode our belief in God, but our belief and trust in his character and who he is. You can check those out online. But what I want to do today is I want to look back at the history of fear and see if we can, if, if our history with fear could teach us something so that we don't keep making the same mistakes relative to, be, be, relative to being afraid. And, and so I want to begin where our story begins in what the Bible calls the book of Genesis. If, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, this is the first book in your Bible. Genesis is, is a book of origins. In fact, um, many believe that, that the, the opening chapters of Genesis are actually a poem written about our story, our creation story. Genesis explains how we find ourselves here in this world and why things in this world are the way they are for both the good and the bad of it. And Genesis, as I began to show you last week, shows us where fear first comes from. Because you realize when God created us and this, it had no place here. There was never supposed to be fear. Max Lucado, we've been studying uh, some of his work in, in a series he calls Fearless. He says, he, he puts like a, a little four-part four understanding to the scriptures and the relationship with fear. 
He says, to understand our story, you have to start with the concept of union. That Genesis is a story, our story begins with a story of union. Now, let me, let me show you how union begins with God and extends to us. Genesis, the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, notice this now, if you're new to scriptures, this is actually almost kind of scary because it blows your concept of God. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God creates man in his image, but he describes himself with a plural pronoun. God doesn't say, let me make him in my image. But he says, let us make him in our image. Right there in the opening chapter of the story of creation, we begin to see that the he of God in some fashion, it turns out that the he is a we. And there's some union concept going on with this God. Now, it, it, when it was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew writers would have understood it a little better than you and I, because the Hebrew word for God is that's used there as a word called Elohim. And Elohim itself is a plural word. But every time Elohim is used, it's always used with a singular verb. It's another clue about this God who's a we acting as one. And if you read the scriptures and you look for this, you'll see it starts to pop up, this concept of union and unity. It starts to pop up everywhere. If you know what happens to man, man falls. And, and in Genesis chapter 3, when it describes the fall of man, this is what it says. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Who's us? Uh, man, later on in the story in chapter 11, in his constant desire to be like God, he decides he's going to build a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. He's going to make it go into the heavens. And you see God again describe his response. Uh, he says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Do you know that? If you don't know that, for the first time you read it, you can kind of go... Whoa. God is one God, but he exists in communion, in unity, in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a trinity of deity, one God in three persons, one throne, a holy union, a holy oneness of three. That's the we of creation. God is saying, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will create man in our image, and thus they take this holy union and they create man in the image of union. And they look at him and they say it is not good for him to be alone. Because he wasn't created to be that way. He was created to be in union with another. He was created, we were created, you were created to be in a union with another. In the image of God, like God. Let me show you what happens. Genesis now chapter 2. The Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground. Take a break there. If you have ever been called a dirt bag in your life, turns out they were right. The Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God, this is, I mean, you just got to imagine the writer writing this, trying to describe 
what God is showing, what has been experienced. He's trying to create a scene for us to enter in, not just to study, but to enter into it. And so the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight, so it's incredibly beautiful, and good for food. So the creation is, is kind of beginning to feed itself. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in this garden, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. The garden has taken care of itself. It's, everything's working in harmony and union and from there it divided, it became four rivers. And then the Lord God took the man and, and in this beautiful creation, God puts him in the Garden of Eden and he gives him work to cultivate it and to keep it. The story continues. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone and God understands this because he created him in his image for unity he says, so I'm going to make him a suitable helper. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now this is crazy. You're, you're, you're familiar with this story? But enter into it for the first time. He brings to the man all of the animals and says, you pick what they're called. And whatever man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And so it's an interesting thing. The writer of Genesis, he's giving us all of this imagery written poetically, this picture of what time looked like when things began, what used to be our story, what we had been created for and invited into originally. There's a garden and a river and trees and, and creatures, animals and birds. And it's as, if, it's as if the writer is trying to get you and I to understand an image. All of this is working in harmony, in union, in unity. The river is feeding the trees. The trees are feeding creation. God is there. Man is there. All of creation is in on it. It's all working together. Adam doesn't need a cage or a whip to deal with the animals. It's all together, this, with Hebrew writers, this is the word shalom. It was all working as it was supposed to work. And check this out, I love this too. God gives Adam the task of naming all the animals, to which I must ask you to ponder this question. Was God not capable of naming the animals himself? Could God not have come up with better names for the animals? To which the duck-billed platypus and spiny lump sucker says, you're darn right he could have come up with better names than man did. So why does he do it? Why does he create this and then give man the responsibility to reign in it with him? You have this infinitely creative God. He's not short on ideas. And yet he gladly, willingly partners with this creation that he's made, this man, to care for the world he put him in. It's as if God says, I, I'm going to work with you. We're going to take care of this together. We're going to reign here together. Meaningful work. He, he's not worked to the bone. He's not sitting around bored. It's meaningful labor. It's partnership with God. Doing, as the scriptures would say in the New Testament, the work that man had been created to do before he was even born. See, this is the way it was supposed to be. 
And so the union's not enough just with God and man and man and the garden and, the, and man and the created creatures. Because God exists in three persons and so now he creates Adam in two persons. The scriptures say, but for Adam there was not a, a found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. And when Adam awoke, he was now a we. Very similar to God in whose image he had been formed. I will take a one moment pause there. This is why marriage is so important. This is why marriage is not to be tossed away quickly. It's a reflection of who God is. Scripture said, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because uh, one writer I, I read this week said, uh, because when I first saw her, I said, whoa, man. <laughs> and the writer goes on as he describes this scene. Can you enter the scene? Can you feel the scene? And, and for this reason, the writer says, a man is going to leave his, his father and his mother and join to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Do you see the union? Just like God, one We'll continue. And the man and his wife were both, this is so good now, church. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, naked doesn't just mean in the physical sense. It does mean in the physical sense, but if you look and take into account the whole story about what you see going on here, the whole unity of creation, one writer tried to describe it and they said this way, it's almost as if in that moment there is this fusion of souls as two become one. They're getting along together. There is an intimacy between God and man and man and man. Another writer points out that bones in the ancient world were symbols of strength and flesh were symbols of weakness. And so bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh carried with it this idea of interdependence, complementary existence. Where I am weak, she is strong. Where she is strong, I am weak. Unity, oneness, Standing naked before each other. Ladies, there was never a day when Eve said, I wonder if he thinks I'm fat. It didn't happen. There's this incredible picture of unity. God and his people, harmony between each one and another. So much so that they have nothing to hide, no secret agendas, nothing to be ashamed of, no fear. Full trust in who God is in each other. No fear. Walk around naked because you're not judging me. You just love me and I love you and we love him. And these trees, they're just producing fruit for us and we're working with that. We're working with creation. God has given us good, meaningful work and we're partnering with him. And to which I have to ask you a question. Isn't this what you've been looking for your whole life? I mean, isn't that what you've been looking for for your whole life? Oneness and unity and wholeness and peace. Walking with others, walking with God. Being known, being fully known, not, not pretending. Isn't that why there, there's something inside of you? There's a writer that once said, that the reason we know there's such a thing as water is because we thirst. 
We didn't thirst, right? The, the, the fact that our thirst shows us that there's something available to quench that thirst, to which I, I, I would say this. I think this is why when you're stuck in a, in a cruddy relationship, uh, when you're fighting with your kids, I, I think when you're stuck in a boring job or meaningless work, you know it. How many of you have ever said, this can't be all there is? This can't be all there is. I'm so tired of fighting. I'm so tired of getting up every day and doing this. And the reason you feel that way is because it's not all that there is, and it's not supposed to be that way. Because here's what happened. Into this unity, into this shalom, comes uh, the serpent, and he asks the questions that he still asks. You know, has God really? The serpent, he offers the first and continual temptation. You know, you could be like God. You can have some more power. You can have more clout. You don't need to trust him. Why are you trusting him? In my plan, Eve, you could be in charge. You could be like God. And Eve becomes, if you, if you, if you can sense it in the story, Eve becomes somewhere in her heart afraid. Because she begins to wonder, what if he's right? What if the serpent's telling the truth to me? What if God is holding out on me? I mean, I, I had been walking in trust with him, assuming that he thought the best and had the best for, interests in line for me, but what if there's more? Uh, what if I'm missing out on something? What, what, if, what if there's more that I don't know about? What if Eden is not enough? What if, what if Adam is not enough? What if there's something better? What if God's not enough? And so what he offers her is the same thing he offers you, which is, you know, you don't have to really trust in God. You could just take matters into your own hand. Why would you trust in him? And so what I want you to hear, church, is this is the deal. At, this is what is at the heart of fear. This concept of uh, God is not going to come through for me. And fear quits trusting in God. Fear makes us want to take control for ourselves. If God can't or won't, then I guess I have to. And Adam hears the story, and he gets scared too, and he takes himself a big bite of independence. And into this union, into this incredible harmony and intimacy, into this union comes disunion. And when they shoved God out, guess who moves in? Fear. Fear. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. I was talking to my father-in-law this week. Many of you know I've been sharing with you that he's very ill. His time is short, and he was talking about he'd been following Jesus for many years. He was saying, I'm excited about my homecoming. And we were talking about this concept of union. Imagine God walking with man and suddenly he comes to be with his, his beloved, and his beloved looks at him and, and is no longer there, and looks at him and goes, I now longer, no longer want to walk with you. I'm now afraid of you. Imagine the heart of this God. Imagine the fear of the man. What happened? 
And this is what fear does. Fear, the first thing it does to us, after it disconnects us from God, after it gets us to question his motives and not trust him any longer, once it gets us to begin to control everything in our lives, here's what fear will cause you to do. Fear will cause you to hide. The first thing fear will do when you start to feel it is it will cause you to hide. Adam and Eve, immediately after fall, at the fall, they realized they are naked. They never realized it before. I just assumed we could trust each other. I just assumed there was no agendas between us. I just assumed I didn't have to worry about if, you know, if I put on a couple pounds. And now I need to hide. Because I can't trust you anymore. You can't trust me anymore. Self-doubt and self-worth issues, fear of being judged, fear of true intimacy or being known, all of it comes barreling into this garden right at that moment. Because this is what fear does. We hide ourselves from each other all the time. If that's not bad enough, if the distrust between each of us was not bad enough, fear has its ultimate victory in making us hide from God. We no longer trust him anymore. We don't believe in his agenda. We still hide out. We still duck in the trees. We still hide out in 80-hour work weeks. We still hide behind our addictions, a bottle of Jack Daniels. We don't don fig leaves anymore, but, but we dress ourselves up. We hide behind all kinds of things. Fancy diplomas. I'm smart. Expensive designer labels, fancy cars, bikers. See, I'm a, you know, you ever, you ever kind of look at us, all we want to do, we're all just trying to find our place and our spot. Like, you know, I'll, if I put on a leather coat, maybe I'll fit in there. And, you know, there's just no sense of it, it's okay to just be me. It never existed before. But I have to show you this about God, and, and this is why he, he's so, he wants you to not be afraid so much. God, right when this thing is starting to fall apart, he enters into the story, and sure, he does a couple things. Number one, he, he lets us feel the consequences of what has happened here. The curse comes, our relationships deteriorate. You start to read about the, the deterioration in the relationship between husbands and wives. We don't trust each other anymore. We try to control and manipulate it all starts to spiral down. I was trying to go to bed last night, right? I got in bed, I flipped on the TV at 10 o'clock at night. Anybody catch the headline news at 10 o'clock last night? North Korea, North Korea had fired off a ballistic missile and, you know, and, and, and uh, President Trump and the, the Japanese Prime Minister were gonna come and they were gonna address it. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, nothing has changed. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And so God comes into this he comes into a garden which no longer is working for us. He comes into a garden that is cursed, that, that no longer is working with us but against us where we're going to have to sweat just to be able to get anything from the ground. But even in the curse, God interjects into the fallen garden just two glimmers of hope. And I want you to remember them for the end of the talk. Two glimmers of hope. The first is this. He says, speaking to, to, to the serpent, speaking about what was to be the fruit of a woman, and in the Hebrew world, there was no such thing as the fruit of the woman. Of a woman, a child was always the fruit of a man. But with just kind of a glimpse, written 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus, there's a glimpse of the virgin birth here. 
And and God says to the serpent that this offspring of a woman would come and, quote, he shall bruise you on the head. Other translations say crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so God introduces into the fall, right at the beginning of the fall, a a restoration process that will take place where where there will be the crushing of this evil and it will be made right again. And there's another second piece of the story that's interesting too. Uh, Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now notice, they had already been clothed. They had been clothed of their best efforts. They had covered themselves up with fig leaves and God takes them off and says, your best efforts will not do. What I need you to see, what I need you to understand is that there is a cost involved in sin, that it involves death. And so God goes and and he takes the skin of animals and he covers his, his, his son and his daughter and he shows themselves something else. That there is a day coming when when God himself would be willing to bleed in order to protect and restore his children. All of it in the first three chapters of our story. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve give birth to Cain, the elder son, and and he has a brother named Abel. And and both, both come to God with a sacrifice. And God accepts the sacrifice of Abel. He rejects the sacrifice of Cain, the older brother. And and Cain, well, in comes Cain. There's more fear there. I mean, have you ever been outdone by your younger brother? Have you ever felt the sting of rejection? Have you ever felt the sting of jealousy, of not being good enough, of being outdone by another? Have you been passed over at work by, by a promotion? Ha, ha, has your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife been stolen by another? Because you've tasted it. And in that moment of fear, of, of not measuring up and jealousy, it manifests itself with Cain striking out to hurt another. You see it on the playground at elementary schools. You see it on the world stage. Fear causes us to hurt one another. In the garden, fear causes Adam and Adam. What's the first thing Adam does? Post-sin. What have you done? It's that woman you gave me. Gentlemen, you've been saying this for thousands of years. It's what what fear does. I, I feel judged. I feel jealous. I feel hurt. I'll hurt you. There's a great old saying. I got introduced to it a couple years ago. It's one of the one of the great truisms. Hurt people, hurt people. Martin uh, Neymuller was a German pastor. He took a heroic stand against Hitler. Some of you know, when he was a young man, he he first met Hitler in 1933. He went to one of his talks, and he stood in the back and listened when Hitler first lectured. He didn't say anything, but when he got home, his wife said, well, what did you learn about Hitler at the meeting? And his quote was that I have learned that Herr Hitler was, quote, a terribly frightened man. Because fear of missing out or finishing second or losing out or jealousy is still causing us to hurt one another over and over and over again. We're joking in our house the other day about about, um, my wife and I, like something about a text. And uh, we we were talking about a text and how the text, when the text had said something about me doing something. And Courtney said, I'm sure immediately mom then said, well, you do this because that's what we do to each other. Well, yeah, let me tell you about you. 
I spent 20 years in corporate America. How many of you are in corporate America? Raise your hand if you've kind of been in corporate America. Is there any bigger truth than this in corporate America? The fear of being passed over or overlooked or out-promoted has been responsible for more than one knife in the back in corporate America. Hurt people hurt people. When you get scared, when you get scared, you will hide. You'll find a place to hide in an identity or behind a bottle of booze or in some relationship. When you get scared, you'll begin to hurt other people. And finally, see, see this. Fear makes us hoard things. A lot of this is pointed out in, in Lucado's great work. You see it in Genesis, and you see it now. In Genesis, the world is a mess. Sin is coming into full bloom. Maybe you first see it when, when, when the writer of Genesis tells the story of the Tower of Babel. The nations had decided to come together to build themselves, the scripture says, a city, a tower whose top would go into the heavens. And they said, we will make a name for ourselves uh, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. You see the fear? It's interesting, there's, there's some theologians that say, really, there's a lesson to be learned here, which is, up until that time, everything built had been built out of stone, but now, for the first time, things were going to be built out of brick and mortar, which was like a big technological advance, and that big technological advance, they thought, oh, this will protect us, and now we can use our technology, our power, what we have, and we can take influence over other people with it. We don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. We don't want to be conquered. And just like Eve, just like Cain, instead of taking their fear to God, they try to control it themselves, and they begin to trust in their stuff. The more we can get, the higher we can get it, the bigger tower we can create, we're going to put our name on top of it, and when they see our name, they're going to know not to mess with us. They're going to know about our power. When the news gets out about this tower, they're going to, they're going to be afraid, and we'll be safe. And so we hoard. We hoard. Why would I trust God if I could get all my stuff, then I could control it myself? We stack it up, bricks and stones, pensions and IRAs, 401ks and property. I was thinking about this, talking about it with the staff the other day. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm probably in some ways right now in my flesh, I'm more fearful than I've ever been. And it seems like it's directly, um, inversely related to how much stuff I have. I have more stuff than I've ever had in my life right now. I've never been more afraid. Because hoarding is a liar. Get more stuff. Then you don't got to worry. You don't got to trust God. And see, this is what fear does. God comes onto the scene, as many of you know, in the Tower of Babel, and he changes their language, and it's all gone in a second. Nobody trusts God anymore. Everybody's afraid, and consequently, they do what fear makes them do. They hide, they hurt, and they hoard. But God doesn't give up. Your God doesn't give up on you. He doesn't. If you read the scriptures, the Old Testament is just constant story of people hiding, people hoarding, people hurting. But into this story comes the concept after union, post disunion. There's a concept of communion because God comes in to the story. The word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us, with us. Jesus, a part of the us of creation, a person of the Trinity, he enters our world not like a human, but as a human. The restoration of unity. Wait a minute, this is starting to sound familiar again. He's, he's with us. He's like us. 
fully human, fetus, birth canal, soiled diapers, bad breath. My wife was a chaperone at a school dance this week, a middle school school dance, and she was sitting out on the, uh, on the thing outside of the, the gym where the kids were in dancing, and this little boy came out, a little sixth or seventh grader came out and sat down next to her and just put his head down. And so Jones said, well, you know, I thought he was trying to be cool, so I didn't want to say anything. And so then he started to cry. And so she goes, well, I didn't know what to do. So I said, are you okay? And he looked up at her, and his tears were coming down his face. And he said, my heart hurts so bad, I just got shot down. <laughs> and I couldn't help but think, it's probably a good shot that Jesus got shot down at a school dance somewhere along the line. <laughs> Imagine being the girl that shot Jesus down. Wouldn't you love to take that one back? <laughs> right? But this concept, like he experienced it all. Because this is the union of God with his people. Paul described it like this in Philippians. He made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself to be with you, like you. And he comes to the hiders and the herders and the hoarders. You know their story. There's the story of the woman at the well. Jesus is going to get a drink. It's the midday. Anybody that actually is a self-respecting person would come in the morning when the sun wasn't up or in the evening when the sun was down. You would never go to the well at midday. It was too hot. But this woman who had had five husbands, the sixth one wouldn't even give her a name. She's too embarrassed. She can't, she can't go during the day. What would people say about her? She was known around town as being the trashy woman in town. And Jesus comes into her place of hiding and says, you don't have to hide. I know who you are. You, you can come. And then he goes to Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus hiding up in the tree? And he says, you know, you can come down. I know you're a tax collector. Zacchaeus, I know you've been hoarding lots of stuff. I know you've been gathering it up, and it's not even your own. You've really been stealing it from everybody in town. But you can let it go. Because I, I, I'm here now. You don't got to trust in your stuff. If you know the story, <laughs> they lunch together and Zacchaeus goes and starts paying it all back. And for a few moments in time, for a few years in time, things begin to smell, smell familiar again. There's a hint of the garden. God is with us. There's no more, no more need to hide and to hurt and to hoard. Jesus walks with them, just like he did in the garden. The, Jesus gives them meaningful work again. Jesus says, I, I know you've been fishing for fish, but you know what? This is all mine, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a bigger project now. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You'll no longer get up every morning and go, I can't believe I got to go to fish. You're going to get up and go, I can't believe I get to partner with the king today in his incredible rescue mission. But for Jesus here, you got to hear this. It wasn't just enough to become like us. It wasn't just enough to live amongst us. Jesus fully embraced what you and I feel, and, and frankly, sometimes we've grown faint of. Here's, here's what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, God made him who had no sin, which was Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became our sin. He placed on himself all of our stuff. 
Adam stuff, Eve stuff, Cain stuff, Babel stuff, my stuff, your stuff, our stuff. Every time I've distrusted, disobeyed, every time I've tried to control, every time I've hoarded, stolen, hurt, hidden. He placed it all on himself. And he allowed himself to taste something that absolutely terrified him in the flesh. Because Jesus tasted fear momentarily. We've just grown so accustomed to it, we don't, we, don't, we don't allow ourselves to feel it. But as the sin of the world was placed on him, as on the cross the sin separated him momentarily from his father, in that momentary moment of disunion that sin always causes, he felt as we have felt for her, our whole lives. He felt sin and fear and the full horror of being human, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he tasted what it was like to be us. And at this moment, it's very true that Satan momentarily bruised the heel of the sun. But through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Jesus crushed eternally the head of the one who has held you and I in captivity in fear for so long. At that moment, God again, at that moment, think back, at that moment again, God covers the sin and the shame of his people, not with their best efforts, not with the skins of animals, but in the precious blood of the son he loves. And on the cross, Jesus reopens a way for you and I back to the way it was supposed to be. And it starts right now. You don't have to be afraid anymore. He opened the way to reunion. I played a voicemail for my friend last week that was talking about his dad in the first service. He texted me and said, I'm bringing my dad to your office at 1230. So I'm going to be talking to my friend's dad very shortly. Um, if you were here, you know what that message is about. It was about his fear of, of death. Um, his dad's dying. My father-in-law is dying. Many of you know that. We've talked about it. Um, and, and so one of the fears about dying is, uh, you know, what's going to happen? And, and the church has done a terrible job describing what the kingdom of God in its full fruition is going to look like. Somehow a lot of us walk around thinking we're going to be like, have wings and a harp and we're going to float on clouds and sing all day. Like what could be less attractive than that, right? Like who would want that? But remember what I told you when we talked about what, what Eden was like? How it was almost, if you're honest, it's everything you've ever been looking for. That was in the first chapter of the Bible. Let me move you to the end of the Bible, because here's what I'm going to be sharing with my friend's dad, who, who's going to be here to the extent he comes to Christ. He will experience this shortly. This comes from the last book of the, the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Tell me that this doesn't sound familiar. Look for what we heard about. Look for the way that the writers of Genesis tried to describe the way it was supposed to be, because this is the way it will be. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Do you see the unity coming back to all of creation? There's rivers, there's trees producing fruit. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. 
There will be no more hurt people hurting people. No longer will there be any curse. And the throne of the God and the Lamb will be in the city. He'll be back with his people. And his servants will serve him. And they'll see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord will give them light. And together, they will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. They, you and I, if we choose to, if you will but take yourself off the throne of your life and allow God back into it, if you will turn and repent from your sins and acknowledge who he is, there will be no more hiding or hurting or hoarding. Full trust in God, complete intimacy with one another. Peace, incredible relationships, meaningful work. That is what lies ahead for those of us who have chosen to give control back to God through Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. The truth is, the union did tumble into disunion. But with Christ, there is an invitation back into communion and a promise of a future reunion. But as we close, I need you to understand this band. You can come up. We're not there yet. We know what it was. We know what it's going to be. But take a moment to understand this. We live between these two moments. And since we're not there, what can we learn from the history of fear? Here's what you need to know, that the tempter is still at work in this place. He is still slithering around, and he is coming to you, and he is lying to you, and he is telling you to not trust God. That God is not good enough. He's not big enough. You need to be afraid. He, he's, not, he's not for you. He's against you. He's still lying to you. The same verse woos you and I. He's not going to come through. And so, because he's not going to come through, you better hide. And you better claw over others to get to the top. And you better gather as much stuff as you can. Are you doing one of these? If you are, I, as, you, as you understand who Christ is and what he's inviting you back to, I, I would encourage you to come out of hiding. I don't know what you're hiding behind, if it's your stuff or prestige or another human being, if you've kind of validated them ahead of God, trying to make a name for yourself. You don't have to hide behind that stuff anymore. Stop hurting people. It's okay if other people get ahead. It's okay. Don't be a hurt person that hurts people. And finally, don't hoard your stuff. There's a kingdom principle. It's, Jesus seemed to indicate that what we do with our stuff on this side of the garden is going to impact what happens and what we're given on that side of the garden. For those of you that have so little, for those of you, the single moms out there, the, the folks that are struggling to get by, and you got, you got a bunch of kids and you're working your tail off and you're coming home night after night and you're going, does anybody care? And Does it even matter? The promise of the kingdom is this, that those of you that have been given very little in this world and done very well with it, you will be given a lot. And the promise for those of us in this world that have been given a lot and just kept piling it up and holding on to it to bless ourselves, well, we're invited in, but we've kind of shown ourselves not to be the best stewards. So don't trust in your stuff. You don't have to fall for the lie anymore. The next time you fear, the next time it enters in, 
and you start to go, I'm getting afraid, I can fear the feel, I, I, I'm thinking about hiding, I, I'm gonna strike back, I'm gonna go check my 401k balance, can I ask you to do this? Look in the face of the serpent and tell him to go back to hell where he came from because you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You have nothing to be afraid of.